Father, we ask for our time right now as we look into your word that you would bless it, that you'd give us a capacity to see things that we couldn't understand without your spirit working. And Father, as we look at things that were written a couple thousand years ago and through archaeology and through research of text and trying to put the pieces together, make what was written, Father, as real to us today as it was at the time it was written for the purpose of expanding your kingdom. Make us bolder as a result of the things that we're about to study. God, we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Um, If you're new to New Hope, you wouldn't know that we're working through a study called The Portrait. And the portrait is based on uh, John, uh, the Gospel of John in the New Testament, John 1.18. Specifically says that no man has ever seen God, but Jesus has explained him. That's what John 1.18 says if you look it up, that Jesus explains God. So we call this the portrait because every time Jesus gives us a description of God the Father, it's as though there's been a brushstroke made on a piece of blank canvas. You're going to see several of those today, several of these brushstrokes that come out on this portrait canvas, helping us to understand God. Now this week as I'm working through this text, I came across an Old Testament description written many, many years before Jesus, an ancient writer who was trying to describe God also. He couldn't do it as fluently as Jesus does because Jesus is God. But in this case, this writer was using descriptive language, which I think will help you a lot. It helped me when I read it, so I want to share it with you this morning. It comes from Psalms 36.5. You'll see it up on the screen. I want you to see how often the word is like is repeated. He's grasping, trying to describe God. First of all, it starts out this way. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. And in Hebrew, when he uses the word heaven, he's talking about interstellar space, the universe, where the planets encircle. Okay, That's the heavens he's speaking of. So your loving kindness, O Lord, extends into outer space. Look at the next one. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. I don't know if you've ever been to Montana. But this Middle East writer lived in a region where the skies were uninhibited by the horizon. Not like here in Michigan where we have large oak trees blocking our view. You've been out to Montana, you know what this Middle East writer was experiencing. He could see the broadness of God. So he uses this description, your faithfulness reaches to the, like the Montana skies, big sky Montana. Look at the next one, verse 6, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Or what are the mountains of God? That's the Sinai Peninsula where God was on Mount Sinai when He gave the Ten Commandments. The mountains of God referred to in the Old Testament. So I have to think in my mind like the Rocky Mountains, this huge mountain chain because the Sinai Mountains are monstrous. So there's another description of how big God is, the righteousness of God. And look at His judgments. Your judgments are like a great deep. What is the great deep here on planet Earth? The Marianas Trench. Marianas Trench in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of Japan. Deepest portion on planet Earth. We know of no place deeper. And he's saying, God, your judgments are like a great deep, such fathoms, so hard to understand. Next, O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness. O God, and the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. You ever seen a mother eagle? Mother Eagle surrounding her eaglets, the young. She surrounds them with her wings and creates a canopy over them. That's the description how much he loves us. He surrounds us and protects us. Look at this last one. 
They drink their fill of the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights, for with you is the fountain of life. There's a big brushstroke. That's the one we're going to look at today when Jesus calls himself living water, this fountain of life giant brushstroke on the canvas. It'll become real to you as you understand this. I'm wondering if this is what Ponce de Leon had in mind when he said the fountain of youth is someplace in Florida. If it came from a biblical description trying to grasp at this eternal life because this fountain of life that's found in God is talking about eternal life, eternal cessation, never fading away. So at this point where we're picking up now, Jesus has increased in popularity. We looked last week at John the Baptist fading out of the scene and Jesus increasing in popularity. There was so much curiosity about who this Jesus was that people were flocking to him. And because there were such large numbers of people flocking to Jesus, it began to be reported to the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the leaders of Israel, To such a degree, there was so much curiosity that Jesus decided, I better get out of town because he did not want a premature conflict with the leaders of Israel before God's appointed time. So he decided to go north. Now, you're going to pick up with me now in John chapter 4, verse 1, if you have your Bible with you this morning. If not, you're going to find them in the pew racks there in front of you. If you don't own your own Bible, and maybe this is your first time at New Hope, those Bibles that are there are there for not only your benefit, but if you don't own a Bible, we want you to take one with you when you leave today. We want you to have your own copy of God's Word, so it's a gift to you, so you can read the Bible yourself on your own time. But the verses will also be up on the screen, so you can follow along that way. John chapter 4 and verse 1 starts out this way. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away into Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. You see, he didn't want this rivalry to create prematurely. That's what I was just telling you. So he decided, I'm going to leave this region where I'm at, this area we looked at last week called Judea, which is really the countryside. Leaving the countryside, he's going to go north. And there's a very specific way to get to northern Israel. Galilee is in northern Israel. So the shortest route to get to Galilee, that's what it says at the end of your verse there, next to verse 4, that he's going to Galilee again. There was a road by which the Jews traveled to get up to Galilee, which was still part of Israel. But it wasn't a way that was easy. As a matter of fact, the Jews went out of their way to avoid a certain country known as Samaria to such an extent that they would take on extra time in their trips, extra labor, just so they wouldn't set foot in Samaria because they hated the Samaritans so much. I'm going to show you this map on the screen so you can help visualize what Jesus was encountering. So if you look down at the bottom of the map, you see Jerusalem. That's where Jesus was at during the Passover. Then he went out to the Jordan River, as we learned last week, and he was baptizing people, and John was baptizing people. Then he decides to leave the river and go all the way up north to the brown area at the very top of the map called Galilee. But do you see in between this green area called Samaria? Here's what really devout Jews did really, really devout Jews, religious Jews, those that didn't want to be contaminated by the Samaritans, they would cross the Jordan River, 
walk along the mountains in the Decapolis region, which was full of Gentiles, meaning non-Jews, because they hated the Samaritans so much, they'd stay off to the east, they'd go all the way up the Jordan River till they got up by the Sea of Galilee, and then they would cross back over the Jordan River again to go into Galilee. That's how much they didn't want to be contaminated by the Samaritans. Now, why is that so significant to know? Because this region, this parcel called Samaria, dates way back in time to a man by the name of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob, one of the founders of Israel. Way back in the Old Testament, Jacob, when he returned from a foreign country, bought this piece of land called Samaria. And in that region, there was this village called Sychar. And in this region, this village called Sychar, Jacob dug a well, a very deep, deep well, 221 feet deep, because they needed fresh water in this region. And so this is a precious piece of land to all of Israel, but they lose it during a period of time as a, like what we would think of as our civil war here in the United States, going back to the 1860s, they had a civil war. Now, the Civil War didn't look the same as ours because this is what happened. When King Solomon went out of power, King Solomon controlled the entire region of Israel. As a matter of fact, much bigger borders than what you see today. The region of King Solomon's reign was bigger than what you see on the map. But he controlled all of Israel. However, when he died, two men vied for power, two kings and so Israel was split in half. So when you're reading through the Bible and you see these words pick up like Judah and Israel, the king of Judah, the king of Israel, those really are two different individuals, two different lands because southern Israel became known as the land of Judah. Northern Israel retained the name Israel and the tribes separated, the 12 tribes of Israel. Benjamin and Judah stayed in the southern half. All the other 10 tribes in the northern half. Now, eventually, they became what the Bible calls really naughty people. It actually uses that word. They disobeyed God. They began worshiping idols. They went against what God called them to do, and so they were hauled off into captivity. The northern kingdom, Israel, was hauled off by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom was hauled off by the Babylonians all the way over to Iran, and they were kept in Babylonia. The Persian people had control over them. Now, in this period of time, they release them. Seventy years later, they all come back to Israel, and the southern kingdom begins to rebuild its temple. They try and establish the worship of God again. But during the period of time that they were in captivity, the king of Assyria sent foreigners to settle the land, the northern region, and they interbred with the Jewish people, and they became known as the Samaritans. They were half-breeds. They weren't true Jews. They weren't true Assyrians. They were half-breeds. And so when the true Jews returned to the southern kingdom and found that this area of Samaria had been settled by non-Jewish people, they broke all ties with them. Now the Samaritans offered their help to come and help them build a new temple, and they refused free labor. And the hatred continued to grow. By the time of Jesus, it was vicious so much so that they would not even set foot on the land of the Samaritan territory. 
So what does Jesus do? He decides to go right through Samaria, right up the middle. And that's where we pick this up. So if you didn't have that history of the geography and didn't know this, when John writes, Jesus had to, you understand there's something significant coming. So if you don't mind in your Bible underlining or circling that word, and he had to pass through Samaria, that's a very significant statement because it's the word die, D-E-I, spelled differently, meaning it was a very intentional act on Jesus' part. He intentionally went through this area. So let's look now at verse 4 with that background information. He came to a city of Samaria called Sychar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, one thing you need to know is the good Jewish boys didn't go to Samaria. They didn't stop in their villages and in their cities. They did not sit at their wells and drink. However, this is a very important piece of land, and I bet the disciples had never in their life seen the well of Jacob, even though it had so much significance to them. But we find Jesus weary and tired and sitting on this ancient well. I've got a picture for you of what it might have looked like. This is a very similar well to the construction of wells at that period of time. You can actually Google later today the well of Jacob and a picture will come up. It actually exists still today. It's still protected. However, somebody's built a huge shrine around it and it's inside a building and it doesn't look like an ancient well. This is what an ancient well looked like. And it was a major job to build one of these things, especially to dig down into that hard ground. And so the people of this time really revered it. We find Jesus hot, tired, and thirsty. He's gone through this long journey. It's mid-May, as you're going to discover next week. Time for the barley harvest. It's one of the hottest seasons of the year. And Jesus is sitting on this well waiting to get a drink. This is a very unusual time of day because we're told it's high noon that's what the sixth hour is in the Bible. They start, they start everything from six in the morning forward. So add six in the morning, add six hours. So when it says the sixth hour, you've got high noon. So it's the heat of the day. Jesus is tired and weary, and he's sitting on a well. Why is that an unusual time to come to a well? Because women were the ones who were responsible for bringing water up from the well. And women didn't go to the well at noon. They went in the cool of the day, in the morning or in the evening. They would never come to a well in the middle of the day. So Jesus is sitting there by himself. Let's pick up the next verse because we get to overhear a conversation. Verse 7, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So the disciples have left to go into Sychar, which is a half mile away. And there's only one road between Sychar and the well. So the disciples, good Jewish boys, are passing the Samaritan woman on the way to the well. They've crossed paths. Now, young Jewish men were not supposed to talk to women, especially Samaritan women. So I'm sure they're covering their eyes as they walk by her. I'm sure she's walking by them thinking, what are the Jews doing here? I can't believe they're in our village. And she gets to the well and she encounters another Jew and she could not avoid him and she had obviously no idea who he was. Now when Jesus, just so, as an aside, when he says give me a drink, he's not being rude. He's not just demanding something. Actually, it's lost in the English translation. If you have an NIV version of the Bible, it's much more accurate when it says, will you give me a drink? Jesus says, will you grant me a drink? Now it's the heat of the day 
and she's got the capacity to get water out of the well. You wouldn't refuse a drink of cold water to somebody in the middle of a hot day. But before she grants his request, she starts engaging him in conversation because this is a bit of a mystery what's going on here. Look with me at verse 9. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You being a Jew, how did she know that Jesus was a Jew? Well, Jesus didn't look like the European paintings that you see. When you see Jesus depicted with blonde flowing hair and blue eyes, that's probably not the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus was a Jew, obviously a Galilean Jew. Probably had a very thick accent from the area that he was raised in, in that area of Nazareth. But obviously she's looking at something else than just his physical features. More than likely as a rabbi, he's wearing a rabbi's robe. And a rabbi's robe always had blue tassels around the bottom of it. So very distinctive Hebrew clothing. She could look at him and know right away, this is a Jew. Why are you speaking to me? I'm a Samaritan woman. Number one rule among men and women in this day and age, Hebrew men, Jewish men, did not speak to women in public. Hebrew men were not allowed to. It was a social faux pas. Women speak to women. Men speak to men. Some Pharisees actually believed and enforced that men should not even speak to their wives, their sisters, or their daughters in public. And you see some of that with Sharia law in the Middle East still today. Women are treated as less than. And so there's going on here in this setting a woman who's shocked that this Jewish man is speaking to her. And John gives us a little parenthetical insight. Do you see his commentary there in brackets and parentheses when he says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? That's to help the church understand the background going on here culturally. As a matter of fact, the word that's used here, dealings with Samaritans, this word dealings is synchromahi. I want you to see the definition for it on the screen. To use jointly, to use vessels together, hold in common or have dealings with. There is to be none of that. It's not to exist. You are not to use vessels together. In other words, you can't drink from the same cup. And that's what really shook her up. Pharisaic law said Jews and Samaritans don't intermingle, they don't talk, and by no means do they use vessels together. No dealings with the Jews between those and Samaritans. So what has Jesus just done here? Think 1960s, Alabama, Mississippi, Deep South, black drinking fountains, white drinking fountains, black school buses, white school buses. And Jesus has shattered all of the social barriers. He's not only gone into a region you're not supposed to go into, he's taken his disciples with him. He's coming to drink from the same drinking fountain that he's told he's not supposed to because Jesus doesn't care about these social rules. As a matter of fact, this is how shocked she is. I want you to see the literal Greek interpretation of the sentence of her response. Look with me on the screen. This is how she actually responded to Jesus. How you, being a Jew, from me ask to drink. A woman, a Samaritan. You see the tone of her surprise? This is overwhelming to her. Don't you know the rules? Strict Jews would not even handle food touched by Samaritans. There was a group of Pharisees 
who actually believed that when a woman walked by you, you were to close your eyes and avoid them at all costs. They were called the bruised and the bleeding because they constantly were walking into buildings. They'd close their eyes when women would come and they'd bump their noses into the walls. So that's how seriously they took this thing. So she didn't understand why he would even ask this. And what does Jesus do? He steps up and he begins to appeal to her curiosity. Watch next, verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So he's lifting her thinking to a whole new realm, unveiling her thought process, taking her from the material to a spiritual reality, taking her from the conversation about water in the well, but she doesn't get it yet. What's Jesus doing? This is called a mashal. And I want you to see the Hebrew word for it up on the screen because a mashal is something that Jesus uses constantly. You'll see it as we move through the book of John. Whenever you see Jesus using a parable when he's teaching people, it's called a mashal. When he talks about the woman who had two coins and she lost a coin and she had her whole friends, all of her friends in the community searching for it, that's a mashal. Every time Jesus sits down to teach, the first century people who followed him understood Oh, he's using a mashal. It's a Hebrew way of teaching to bring in a principle that they wouldn't get on their own. So this woman is understanding, if you knew, well, she doesn't know. So he's using a mashal. What does she not know? The gift of God. You know what that is. We looked at that three weeks ago. We looked at John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave so that's the gift what did he give the gift was the son of god his only begotten son so the mashal is jesus putting this together if you knew the gift what's the gift the son of god if you knew the son of god the one who's saying to you give me a drink you would have asked of him and he would give you living water so this mashal starting to fit together he's the source so the fountain who comes asking for a drink himself is now turning the tables and saying, you need a drink from me. As a matter of fact, this is a description of God from the beginning of our study this morning. Look with me on the screen, Psalm 36. Psalm 36, 8, they drink their fill of the abundance of your house and you give them to drink of the river of your delights for with you is the fountain of life. So there's that picture of water again. So the word for living that's used here means gushing, bubbling, springing up. Fresh, living water, not stagnant water. It's bubbling. So here's a brush stroke of our God on the canvas. He's this living, moving water, the one who brings life to us. There's no stagnation with him. Here's his description of himself, God speaking of God, Jeremiah 2.12. Look with me on the screen. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. Look what he calls himself. The fountain of living waters. This is really going to be significant to you as we move through this because of this conversation about water. Go with me to verse 11, and you're going to see how quick-witted this woman is because she's got kind of a hard heart. She's built a shell around herself. She said to him, verse 11, Sir, 
You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? So she heard the mashal, she heard his words, but she totally missed the meaning and was not comprehending this. You have nothing to draw with. All you have is the rope around your robe. You can't reach down 125 feet. How are you going to get that water? Where are you going to get it from? Now here's what living water meant to her. Because Jacob, she understood, the ancient patriarch had hand dug this well all the way down to the bottom. And when he hit an underground river, the ancients began to call it living water because it was flowing, this underground stream. So the living water is at the very bottom of the well. It's at the deepest point, but it's the best stuff. But you've got to go to the bottom to get it. So you've got to have a really, really long rope to get down there. You have no rope. How are you going to deliver on what you just promised? You're not greater than Jacob, are you? You see this developing here where Jesus talks to her about what she's really in need of? So go with me to verse 13. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. And I'm thinking at this point, he's pointing to the well. Everyone who drinks of this water, you're going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now this water that we have that we drink every day, I've got some here in a bottle and I need some right now. This stuff evaporates, doesn't it? Passes through our body. We dump it out on the streets. We water our lawns with it. It evaporates into the atmosphere. It only satisfies our thirst for a little bit of time. That's what Jesus says. It's short-lived. This water that you're drinking, it doesn't last very long. But what I'm going to give you is eternal. And it keeps reproducing. See that? Becoming in him. Look closely at verse 14. Become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Look at this word for springing up. Halomai. The definition on the screen, to leap, jump, figuratively to gush. That's the word Jesus used. What I'm going to give you is just going to start gushing from inside. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Someone receives Jesus, believes in Jesus. The Holy Spirit of God comes into you, and it's eternal life. And it not just feeds you. It's bubbling. It's reproducing. Not that you can bring somebody eternal life, but you're a representation of that eternal fountain of water. You are what people see when they think of God if you're a Christ follower. And this reproduction of this water is just gushing from you. Why is that person so-and-so so different? Well, they know Jesus now. They've got the Holy Spirit within them. So Jesus is talking about this fountain, and he's the original source of it. So that's why we would say, this fountain comes asking for a drink, and he turns around and says, you've got a drink from my fountain. So this description is a beautiful brushstroke of our God. So let's move forward now. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water, because she's got the very superficial mentality. How's she thinking? She's not thinking spiritually at this point. She's thinking materially. Her interests are superficial. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way down here to draw. Why did she say that? A typical Jewish woman or a Samaritan, somebody living in the Middle East, 
In her case, she had to walk a half mile back and forth to the well, bringing typically 40 gallons of water into her household every day. 40 times 7, she's carrying 210 pounds of water a day just to maintain her household. So no wonder she's saying, I don't want to come here and draw water anymore. You got some of that living water? Tell me where it's at because I want some. Jesus, he said to her, go call your husband and come here. (sighs) Breaks to the conversation. Why would Jesus ask her to do that? Now that's a problem. And I'm thinking at this point, there's dead air in the conversation. And the dead air, if you know the story at all, is because she's trying to think, how am I going to get out of this? Jesus was using good etiquette here because a man was not supposed to talk to a woman in public. So he's telling her to go get her husband and we'll finish having this conversation. He set her up for her response. Now, at this point, you have to ask yourself, what image do you have in your head of this woman? Jesus sees something more than you might know. She's not just a housewife caring for her family, going to get the water for the day and bring it back. She's coming at noon, which means she's trying to avoid the other women of the city. Why? Let's look at verse 17. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Have you ever lied to God before? You see an example here of somebody who's telling a half-truth, and she's talking to God and giving partial information. I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. You know it's really hard to hide things from an omniscient God. He knows everything. So why try? But we do it constantly. And this woman doesn't know she's talking to God at this point, so she's being really evasive about her immoral lifestyle. You've said truthfully you have no husband. She's not lying, but she's not telling the whole truth. She's had five, and because she's in this desperate attempt to conceal that knowledge from this man, she begins being evasive. Not only is Jesus able to speak to her as a Samaritan woman, he's speaking truth to her. And I don't know that she's ever had someone do this. So this shocks the woman when Jesus said, you've had five husbands. I don't know if you've ever known someone who's been divorced five times, but the emotional shell gets really, really thick the armor that that person is wearing because they've been hurt, they've been abused, they've been burdened to the degree that she isn't even going to live with the sixth guy as her husband. She's living with him as a man that she's shacking up with. So Jesus looks right to her heart and this has now crossed the boundary line. We're no longer talking about water in the well. We're not talking about Jacob. We're talking about a person who's living in an adulterous lifestyle and God's looking right into her. So that's why I ask, what image do you have of this woman? Because everything turns on a hinge when you think she's a homemaker gathering water for her family and you find out there's something far deeper going on in this person's life. Here's the important part about that. Regardless of that information, God who knows everything is not willing to say, You adulterous woman, I am not even going to talk with you. 
No, he's having a conversation with her about the things of God, and he's entered into one-on-one conversation. Why? Because he sees her as a person in need of a Savior. And it's just one individual out on a well in a backcountry town in the middle of this region he's not supposed to be in called Samaria. Go with me to verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Really? (laughs) I could get that one. Now watch how she tries to change the subject. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. She's cornered, and she's trying to avoid what has become a very uncomfortable conversation. Jesus has explored into the hidden parts of her life, and she's finding it very sensitive and is trying to back out. If you've been a follower of God very long at all, you know the answer to this question. When God brings you under conviction, does he ever let up? No way. God does not let up. But what I want you to see is that Jesus takes every one of us to class in this next sentence. Because he decides that if she's going to try and change the subject, I'm going to go down that trail with her. It's this kind of thing. Jesus is taking the debate to a whole new level. She's decided that she wants to talk with the king of kings about worship. Go back and read that again. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Can you imagine having a conversation with God about worship? So it's like this. Okay, you want to change the subject? I'll go head-to-head with you on that one. Let's talk about worship. So watch what Jesus does as he begins to pour into her mind and open up her thinking about what worship really is. Verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. And I'm sure that one really hurt because the Samaritans believed they had it figured out. The Jews figured they had it all understood. How do we worship? Jesus is saying, you're worshiping what you don't even know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews True statement, Jesus was a Jew. He brought salvation. He's saying, it's coming through me. And it elevates the conversation above location. It is not about this building on 1340 Hazlitt Road. It's not about whatever building you may have worshipped in in the past. It's not about the temple in Jerusalem. It's not about a mountain in Samaria. It's about your heart. It's not the location. Jesus says you've got to deal honestly and openly with God. You've got to speak in truth. So you worship in your spirit. She's not speaking in truth. So Jesus is going right to the heart of the matter. Now watch next, verse 23. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. No longer need a special temple. We no longer need a mountain. We worship God through the Holy Spirit who invades our life when we surrender to Jesus. So look at Jesus' description of God. Verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. There's another brushstroke. God is spirit. And if God had not revealed himself through the Bible, he would be literally incomprehensible. We would have no understanding of him. So we need Jesus to explain God. He's not material. He can't be confined. But yet man tries to confine him all the time. And she isn't getting this. 
So she tries to dodge the truth, not giving him all the material that he needs, and she's unwilling to open her very hard heart. So watch next. This is where we're going to end it today. Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Code. You're talking over my head here, and I'm not getting what you're saying. So let me try and change the subject again. And she starts talking about Messiah. So the Samaritans understood there was one coming who was called the Messiah. They understood there was a God to be worshipped, but they didn't have all the pieces put together. So in ignorance, she's saying, I don't understand it all, but there's one coming who's going to explain it all. There's a tradition that goes way back in time when Israel was one nation that said from Moses' lips, he said, there is one coming in the future who's going to explain everything. And that's what she's hanging all her hopes on. It's her one hope of knowing God. So Jesus is using that and speaking right to her spirit. Look with me up on the screen, Deuteronomy 18.15. This is Moses speaking. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. In other words, when the Messiah comes, he was going to explain everything. If you go on and read Deuteronomy 18 later today, you'll see that. This one coming is going to explain God. So Jesus is using that to go right to the heart when he says what he says in verse 26. Look with me. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Give me a show of hands. You ever had a Jehovah's Witness come to your door? Okay. Every person involved in the Jehovah's Witness movement believes that Jesus is not the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And the conversations that take place are very hard to pin down and have your fingers on the conversation of exactly what they're saying. But one thing they're usually adamant about is if you get far enough into the conversation, they will deny Jesus. And they will deny that Jesus ever said he was the Messiah. Take them to verse 26. If you ever had a conversation with a Mormon, a Mormon does not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. They say Jesus is a Son of God, we are all sons of God. So they deviate from the truth and say that Jesus never declared that he was the Son of God, the Messiah. Take them to verse 26. Save that in your Bible. The next time someone comes to your door knocking with a watchtower magazine, say, I'm going to save you a lot of conversation. Let's go to John 4:26. I'm going to show you right now. Now imagine the shock in this woman's mind when she heard Jesus say this because he's voluntary voluntarily announcing who he is. Up till this point, Jesus has not announced that he is the Mashiach. And who does he choose to do it with? An adulterous woman with five failed marriages, shacked up with another guy, living in Sychar in the middle of Samaria. He's trusted the information about the Messiah to this woman. How much more will he trust all of us with the knowledge of who he is? Why does he trust her with this information? He knows she's going to do something with it. She's got nothing to lose. She needs the living water. She needs this bubbling halomai, this gushing springing forth, this new life. 
So with these words still ringing in her ears, she begins to take off and head back to the village. What words are ringing in her ears? If you're interested in theology at all and you like the details of Scripture, you'll want to know that that very last word on the sentence, the word he, is not in the original Greek text. So this is the way it actually reads. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am. So remove who speak to you. I am. Sound familiar? One of 26 times Jesus said, I am the living word. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am. Same as God said on Mount Sinai, I am that I am. That's what's ringing in her ears. I am. I just met God. So she bolts for the city. And I'm sure what started out as a gentle walk probably turned into a sprint. We're going to stop here, but I want you to see what happens next week when we pick it up because the disciples arrive on the scene. And they're a little bit confused. Verse 27. At this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? The disciples turn and they watch her running down the road and we're told in the next verse that they turn back and John, the eyewitness who wrote this story, looks at the well and he sees something. Verse 28, so the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come and see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Mashiach, is it? This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. That she left her water pot sitting on that well speaks volumes. She is so overwhelmed, she forgets her business. She's no longer caring for her household. She's got a story to tell. And she's running for the city. And she's going to tell all these individuals. And her story is so sincere that immediately when they hear it, the individuals of the city begin heading towards Jesus. And before he can eat his carry-out dinner that the disciples have just brought him, he turns and sees the village is moving towards him. That's where we're going to stop. This whole machinery of God's grace has been set in motion. When Jesus had to go through Samaria, didn't cross the Jordan River, decides to go right through the middle of the land that no one else steps into. Why? Because he had to encounter people whom he had an appointment with which they didn't even know about. How big is this well, this fountain of life that our God allows us to drink from? There's a description of it in Revelation. Look with me on the screen. Revelation 22:16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Not just the Jews, not just the Samaritans, the entire globe. Whoever who is willing to take it and drink from it. It doesn't mean a blanket statement, everybody's in. It means whoever is willing to receive it. So this crisis of belief that we've talked about since week one when we started the portrait This crisis of belief, what you believe about God determines what you do next, is played out in this woman's life. What she believes about God 
is determining what she does next. She's running to the village. That's where we're going to pick up next week. I see a couple things that really jump out of me out of this text. Here's one specifically. Jesus stopped and took time for one single individual. The same thing that you can do every single day. You don't have to be working in a summer Bible camp. You don't have to be a full-time missionary. He talked with one individual. He didn't say to her, I'm on my way to Galilee to speak to hundreds of people. Let me go. I just want a cup of water. No, he stopped and had the conversation. Here's the second thing. Jesus did not need to win the debate. That's a problem in Christianity today. Christians believe that they need to engage every non-believer as though there's a victory to be won by putting them down and saying, Ha! Showed you! And that's not what Jesus models here. It's not about the debate and who gets to win the argument. It's about winning the soul for the kingdom. So Jesus opens her mind and helps her to understand there is a much bigger truth going on here, lady, than what you're getting. And it's not about what you think it's about. I'm way, way bigger than you understand. That's the mentality I'd love to see every one of us go into conversations with individuals who are trying to understand God with. Just that one-on-one conversation, it's not a debate. It's about winning people to the kingdom. Let's ask God to seal these things into our heart. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you today with hearts that were earnest and ready to learn. And I believe, God, through the worship and through the things that we've seen and what you allowed John to write down, we have a new understanding. Father, I ask that you would continue to seal these things in our heart. Make it real for us, Father, as we take on this week ahead of us. I believe there are many of us here who don't know what this week holds for us. We think we do. But just like Mary Grace did a week ago today, she's facing a new reality this morning. God, many of us here are going to be encountering things we didn't anticipate this week. I ask that you help us to make you preeminent in the middle of all of it. God, allow us to make you first. And that's so hard to ask for because our temptation is to put ourselves first. So Father, I ask that in earnestness for all the men and women here, for all the students here, Allow us to put your purposes first and to give you the glory and honor. It's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen.